Wonderful to be with you all today. Praise God for this weather. Um, I like the little soundtrack I have right now. It's a little, I feel like I'm in a video game. I don't know where it's coming from, but um, I'm a child of the 80s, and that's the kind of soundtrack I grew up with, with my regular Nintendo and uh, Game Boy. Anyway, um, super dating myself right now, but wonderful to be with you all on this uh, sunny day. We're continuing our Exodus series. I'm excited to get back into the book of Exodus. Uh, so we'll be in Exodus 12, verses 1 through 28. If you have a Bible, go ahead and uh, navigate there or turn there. Exodus 12, 1 to 28. We'll be talking about the Passover. And if I could go back in time, I might have tried harder to sync this, this Passover message with the actual Passover that, that was celebrated not too long ago. In any case, coming to the, the point of the famous uh, Passover in the book of Exodus. And Exodus is central to the narrative of the Old Testament, and I would go so far as to say the narrative of the Bible. Uh, the book of Genesis is kind of like a prelude to the book of Exodus. Pretty much everything that comes after Exodus is some, somehow commenting on Exodus or pointing to Exodus. Uh, there's a book that I highly recommend called Echoes of Exodus. It's how the the sound of Exodus echoes throughout the entire Bible, uh, and it's, it's really great, I think, to sort of dive pretty deeply into this one book that is so central to the biblical narrative, uh, because you might, you might call this, this narrative, the Exodus narrative, pretty important for our lives as the people of God. I believe God exists. I'm here because I, I wholeheartedly believe that God is real, that He exists, that he revealed himself in the person of Christ. If you don't believe that, uh, well, why are you here? Maybe you're exploring. Maybe you're interested. Maybe God is doing something in your heart to sort of uh, open your eyes to his reality, and I pray that would be the case. I think God, particularly in the person of Jesus, is worth knowing, worth following, even worth loving uh, with our whole selves. So if God is real, then knowing him and knowing how to be his people, knowing how to relate to him. I would call those things the most important uh, elements of our human existence. That's a pretty lofty claim because we're modern people. If what I just said is, you, if you think I'm being just lofty, like knowing God, knowing how to be his people, yeah, it's important. But the most important thing in life well, that's just because we're modern, if that isn't like really resonating. It's because we're modern. Modernity would, would tell us that it's not practical. Uh, it, it doesn't really help me in the crush of my nine to five. It doesn't help me in my schooling. It doesn't help me pay my loans. It doesn't help me in my relationships. It doesn't help me achieve all the things that I'm wanting to achieve in life. Well, remember I said, I, I believe God is real. I, I hope our I hope the sermon, I hope our walk through this Exodus narrative uh, awakens us to that fact a little more. If God is real, then, yeah, knowing who he is, knowing how to be his people, I think it is useful. I think it's very useful. I think it's practical for every area of life. If God is the creator and author of life, then, yes, knowing him is useful. But, but there's something more important than the utility of knowing God. It's the beauty of knowing God. Knowing God, knowing how to be the people of God is beautiful. Uh, and as we will see, God created us to know him and to relate to him. And so if 
knowing God and relating to God as his people uh, are the very reason that we were created, then it's where the human heart will find the fulfillment that it's looking for in every other area of life. So there's the beauty of living for the purpose for which we were created, which is to know God and relate to God. But there's a huge and obvious problem, which is that something is wrong in the world. Something is very wrong with the world that we live in. I don't really need to belabor that point. You know that the world is broken. You know that it's fallen. You don't need to believe in God to realize that. There's something wrong. There's something very intractably wrong that has been wrong for as long as human history has been recorded. And all of us together in various ways suffer for it in some way. There's just something not quite right in the world. I would go so far as to say that there's something not quite right in the human heart and all of our inner disposition and will and even desires. There's something that keeps the world from becoming the world that everyone wants the world to be. But in the midst of uh, the, the worst possible suffering, and in our passage that suffering um, takes the form of the enslavement of human beings. Okay, that's, that's one very obvious way that you see the world is broken. In our passage, you see the enslavement of human beings. That's how you know that there's something wrong in the world. Because that, that phenomenon didn't stop in this Exodus narrative. It continued until pretty recently. You know something's wrong and broken with the world. But in the midst of the worst possible suffering, uh, God provided a way for humanity to know him. Because remember, that's the reason that we were created. I believe God exists. If he does exist... I think the Bible shows us he created us to know him. Therefore, he's committed to achieving that purpose for humanity to know him and to relate to him, even in the midst of the worst possible suffering imaginable. So in our passage, which centers on this, this famous Passover event, uh, God is communicating this, that in the midst of your fallen and broken world, I'm committed for you to know me and to worship me and to, to achieve, to to not achieve as in we, we earn it, but to, to experience the life that I've created to give you, uh, which is to know me. I'm speaking is it, with the voice of God here. God, God created us to know him and to relate to him, even in the midst of this fallen condition. So some of the pieces of our passage may be a bit obscure. I hope to make them a little more clear, but when, when the pieces fit together, it really presents the beauty of God's uh, final picture of human relationship to God as being the ultimate end for why we're here. So I'll pray and then we'll jump in to Exodus 12. <clears throat> Father, thank you that you did create us. Thank you that you did create us to know you and to love you and to worship you, even in the midst of a world that rejects you, even in the midst of a world that suffers the effects of our rejection of you. Thank you that you're redeeming a people all through it, all through our lives. I pray that if anyone really is, is searching for you here today, God, they would find you, that you would make yourself known to them, that you would edify us. Uh, for those of us you, you have brought into your family, God, that you would reveal yourself to us even more and help us to live the lives to which you are calling us in Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. So Exodus 12, and uh, just before I begin reading what is a pretty long passage, um, I just want to, because we've, we've taken a break from this Exodus series, just give a brief overview of, of where we've been. Uh, 
what Exodus has said up to this point. So as a reminder, the, the people of Israel, we, we see this <clears throat> sort of very beginnings of, of a people coming together at the end of Genesis. Uh, Joseph was sent ahead into Egypt uh, so that his family might be saved, and, and by extension, the, the, the wider nation, both of Egypt and the people that were attached to Joseph. So you see, you see this, this family of, of Joseph, these, these Hebrew people uh, in Egypt that have multiplied a great deal. They've, they've become the size of a full-on nation, uh, but, but Egypt has perceived them to be a threat. So the, the ruler of Egypt, Pharaoh, has enslaved um, these Hebrew people. He's enlisted them into his service. Uh, they don't have full rights as Egyptians. Um, further, and shockingly, he's ordered the death of all of the firstborn children of the Hebrews. So there is the enslavement of this whole people and a genocide, the genocide of the firstborn. That was a claim to deity by Pharaoh. In exercising the right to the firstborn, Pharaoh is setting himself up as God. Because in this culture, the, the firstborn is very symbolic, very significant. Uh, the firstborn of the family is, is dedicated to God, in a sense, to become a living sacrifice, something, someone set apart for the service of God. So to own the firstborn is a claim to deity, and, and Pharaoh has exercised this false claim to deity in the worst way by, by killing the firstborn. Um, Moses, one Hebrew person, as a baby is spared because his mother hid him in a basket and sent him downriver. So he, he escapes this genocide. The daughter of Pharaoh finds him, has pity on him, raises him in the house of Pharaoh as kind of an Egyptian prince. Uh, so Moses grows up uh, in Egypt as an Egyptian, though he is Hebrew. Uh, his conscience is sort of pricked one day when he sees an Egyptian taskmaster beating and ultimately killing one of his Hebrew brethren. So Moses retaliates by killing this Egyptian taskmaster uh, and, and he flees Egypt as a result. So he has this 40-year um, nomadic existence after that. The Bible really condenses that part of his life. Um, God encounters him in the midst of this 40-year nomadic existence. You, you remember the famous burning bush episode. God commissions Moses to actually return to Egypt and be the instrument through which God would liberate his people, the Israelites, from this oppressive situation. And there are successive signs that God does against the Egyptians. They intensify uh, in kind and number. And um, ultimately, Pharaoh's heart is hardened through it all. He's resistant to letting the Israelites go. We're now to the point in the narrative where the final sign is about to be done, the final plague on Egypt, the final expression of God's judgment, which in this context understood uh, according to the time and the place in which it is set is very just and very fitting. It's the perfect justice of God understood in this context to actually uh, kill the firstborn of Egypt. It, it is the fitting response to the Egyptian genocide on his firstborn. It's now a plague where the, the firstborn of Egypt themselves are going to die. Pharaoh has brought this on himself. He had an opportunity to let Israel go. Um, he is, he is in the process, brought, brought death and destruction to 
his people through these signs that God is doing, through his hardness of heart. God is bringing the final judgment now, the, the death of the Egyptian firstborn. Uh, we're brought to the very night of this final judgment where God is going to pass over his own people. All right, he's creating a people for himself, uh, and he's passing them over in his judgment. That brings us to our passage. Uh, Exodus 12, 1 through 28 reads, The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons, according to what each can eat, you shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male, a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the 14th day of this month, when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. They shall eat the flesh that night, roasted on the fire with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. They shall eat it. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roasted, its head with its legs and its inner parts. And you shall let none of it remain until the morning. Anything that remains until the morning you shall burn." In this manner you shall eat it, with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, your staff in your hand, and you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And on all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you. When I strike the land of Egypt, this day shall be for you a memorial day, and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations, as a statute forever. You shall keep it as a feast. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. On the first day, you shall remove leaven out of your houses, for if anyone eats what is leavened from the first day until the seventh day, that person shall be cut off from Israel. On the first day, you shall hold a holy assembly, and on the seventh day, a holy assembly. No work shall be done on those days, but what everyone needs to eat, that alone may be prepared by you. And you shall observe the feast of unleavened bread, for on this very day I brought your hosts out of the land of Egypt. Therefore, you shall observe this day throughout your generations as a statute forever. In the first month, from the 14th day of the month at evening, you shall eat unleavened bread until the 21st day of the month at evening. For seven days, no leaven is to be found in your houses. If anyone eats what is leavened, that person will be cut off from the congregation of Israel. Whether he is a sojourner or a native of the land, you shall eat nothing leavened. In all your dwelling places, you shall eat unleavened bread. Then Moses called all the elders of Israel and said to them, Go and select lambs for yourselves according to your clans and kill the Passover lamb. Take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood that is in the basin and touch the lintel and the two doorposts with the blood that is in the basin. None of you shall go out of the door of his house until the morning, for the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians. 
And when he sees the blood on the lintel and on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to enter your houses to strike you. You shall observe this rite as a statute for you and for your sons forever. And when you come to the land that the Lord will give you, as he has promised, you shall keep this rite as a statute for you and for your sons forever. And when you come to the land that the Lord will give you, as he has promised, you shall keep this service. And when your children say to you, what do you mean by this service? You shall say, it is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover. For he passed over the houses of Israel in Egypt when he struck the Egyptians but spared our houses and the people bowed their heads and worshiped then the people of Israel went and did so as the Lord had commanded Moses and Aaron so they did Um, the influential British sociologist Anthony Giddens has written a lot about the modern age. If you couldn't tell, what we just read is not very modern. Um, I hope to explain the text by explaining a little bit about our modern age. Anthony Giddens uh, talks a lot about how we got to be the way we are, and he says that one very distinct feature of modernity is our conception of time, both clock time and calendar time. In the pre-modern age, which of course our text highlights, time was closely linked with space. Time was closely linked with where a people lived and existed. Uh, meaning the way in which people organized their day, their time, their sense of time revolved around their dependence on the resources of their wider space. Time was very linked to space and place which is not the case today. There was no getting up at seven to commute to a job by nine all year round. Um, there, there were instead patterns of the sun, patterns of the season, seasons, patterns of harvest, um, patterns of human activity very tied to just the movement, uh, the movement of the sun and the earth and the changing of the weather. Uh, one's particular environment determined how one made use of their time. So work as such, work as we understand work, didn't exist because work was just subsistence. Work was just uh, surviving off of the land in one's immediate environment. The specific hours of the day were kind of irrelevant. Um, time was just understood according to what the day required according to the place that people lived in. Time was connected to place. So obviously <laughs> that is not the case in our time. With what is so unique about the day and age that we live in is that time, with only rare exceptions, is almost universally marked. Time is almost universally marked, whether it's universally Eastern or universally Western. The point is that billions of people share a calendar. Billions of people from very different cultures, many thousands of miles away, are, are almost synced completely with you know the obvious exception of being in different time zones we're following the same clock the same calendar the same year the same months the same days of the week even the same odd things like leap year um, you might have a different new year depending on your different culture or your different religion 
for the most part, billions of people are really in sync. That's very modern, very modern. If you're alive today and you consider the difference between 6 and 7 p.m. to be really distinct and crucial for my day and really important, that's modern. Six, the difference between 6 and 7 is totally irrelevant for the majority of humans in human history. <clears throat> I bring, why do I bring all this up? Because our passage is very concerned with time and dating. If, if you're familiar with this Passover narrative, the Exodus narrative, maybe that hasn't been as, as prominent to you, but our passage is super concerned with time and dates. And I really want to highlight this, this fact today. The Passover event is inextricably linked to the Israelite calendar. In fact, God is using this event to create the Israelite calendar. He's using this event to create the conception of time for this nation of Israel. Now, that tells us that the passage of time is universal, right? We, we age. There's a passage of time in the world in which we live. But the organization of time is hyperlocal. The organization of time is a creation. Did you ever consider that the way we organize our time and our dates is a creation? January 1st through December 31st did not exist for ancient Israel. Rather, God is organizing their time. We're seeing in, in our passage that there's, there's a force even above and beyond Monday through Friday, Friday, January through December. There's something even above and beyond our conception of time. It's God. God is above and beyond the organization of our time and our dating. January 31st through December 31st is a human creation, and it's not good or bad. It just means that it's not ultimate. It means that God is ultimate, even ultimate over our time and our dating. Dates are his. Time is his. How we organize the lives he's given us, that's the point here. How we organize our time is meaningful to God and matters to God. Of course, in the modern world, we are bound to our work schedules, our church schedules, the way that school organizes our time, the way our families require to be, um, you know, provided for. Yes, we have to follow the clock that is uh, dictated to us by the structures that surround us. But have we considered that the organization of time is a spiritual matter? January 1st through December 31st is not God. God is God. Without giving our times to God, our dates to God, considering how time and date might facilitate our relationship with God, we're actually treating time like an Egyptian taskmaster. Do you ever consider that? If, if God is not God of even our time and our dating, well, time is like an Egyptian taskmaster over us. We're not meant to be slaves to the clock or to the calendar. Now, God is, is here showing his people that their organization of time is meant to facilitate their relationship with him. That's why you don't, in the text, we don't just go from the 10th plague on the firstborn to the Exodus. We don't just go from the plague to, to leaving Egypt. We have this whole Passover event with very specific restrictions and elements to it. Why, why do we have this big fat Passover in the midst of the plague and the exodus. It's because God is using this event to facilitate the relationship of his people to him. The Passover event is meant to relate Israel to their God. Remember, that, remember they were free for a purpose. 
That's why we don't just go from freedom to exodus. We go from, freed, from, from um, the plague to the exodus. We go from the plague to the Passover to the exodus, showing us that we're free for a purpose. The purpose is relating to God. He's using this event to facilitate relationship. And the Passover marks the beginning of Israel's life as a nation. It will be remembered as the first month of their year, every year that they exist for all time. Of course, the Jewish people still celebrate the Passover. That's why I kind of wish we would have linked this, this to the Passover feast. In any case, maybe next year. Um, Israel is not to be the passive recipients of some vague universal atomic clock, nor are they to organize their time around the impositions of this enslaving uh, Egyptian state. Instead, instead, they were to use their time to identify themselves as the people of Yahweh, as the people of the true and only living God. They were to celebrate their birth as a nation in this Passover event in their liberation from Egypt for the purpose of worshiping God as this newly formed national identity. Time itself for the people of God served a symbolic and identifying purpose. And, and don't we celebrate birthdays every year? We know that the passage of time is symbolic. It's hardwired into us, the symbolism of certain events throughout the year specifically for us in, in the birthday celebrations that we have or acknowledge, if we don't celebrate our birthdays, I'm sure we at least acknowledge them at the same time, the same date every year, or for those few of us who, who do need the week-long birthday celebration. Um, we know the symbolic significance of birthdays, right? We tend to commemorate them symbolically with cakes, with candles, with singing, with presents, hopefully. There's symbolism built into our lives, whether we, whether we see it that way or not. We're, we're kind of hardwired for it. And the event of our birth is so significant, so defining, that it just sticks with us for the rest of our lives. Birth is such a divine, defining event that we tend to recapitulate that birth year by year until we die. We mark it. It's so significant that it's marked every year for as many years as we have. We, we see that going on in our passage. The, the Passover event, the liberating event is so significant, so formative in the lives of this people, so defining, so creating, that God says, remember this year by year. Perform this. Don't just remember it. Perform this year by year as a commemoration of who you are and who I am according, uh, who you are according to who I am. You're my people now. You're the people of Yahweh. And this event will be part of your lives for the rest of your lives. Now, the Exodus, um, spoiler alert in, in our text, they're, they're about to be liberated. They're about to be set free from the oppressive state of Egypt. Uh, and they're to ready themselves uh, by eating this, this meal in haste. What, what is the significance of this hasty eating of this very peculiar meal and these very peculiar rituals, you know, belt fastened? Um, sandals on, staff in hand. They're not, this is not a leisurely meal. They're eating it as if they're about to bolt. They, they got one foot out the door in the eating of this meal, and it's a very specific meal. A lamb without blemish, roasted, not boiled, bitter herbs, unleavened bread, eaten in haste. Well, there's no time to let the bread rise because they're about to bolt. There's no time for leavening. It's, it's just flat, unleavened bread, uh, the bare essentials, 
um, bitter herbs symbolizing probably the bitterness of their lives under Egyptian slavery. Of course, a lamb without blemish, very specific elements. This is a very physical, very embodied ritual. This is, this is a very lively, a very living, a very, again, embodied ritual. God's people are to embody this ritual year by year. And I just want to highlight that this speaks to the embodied nature of human life and the life of the, the worshiping community in particular. Our, our COVID time is a disembodied time. Okay, why do we feel just tired? Physically, emotionally, and yes, spiritually depleted. You know, why, why is digital church service just, it's good that we're doing it, but it's not, it's not ideal. It's, it's, not, it's not the goal. The goal is to be together. The goal is to, to be the church together as an embodied people, physically present. And I, again, long for the day when we're just fully in that world, but the embodied nature of the Passover speaks to the embodied nature of human life and particularly human life together, human life together. It also speaks to the embodied and living nature of theology, of the truth of who God is, what he's done, who we are in response. Theology, the communication of God's truth. If you think theology is boring, I would suggest it's because we've come to think of it as purely head knowledge, purely a script to memorize, just purely a list of doctrinal statements. Rather, what we're seeing in this Passover event is that theology or the communication of who God is, what he's done and who we are in response, is meant to be lived. Theology is an embodied practice. It includes truth statements. It includes the wonderful truths of this book. But it includes the lived truths of this book. That's what theology is meant to encompass, not just head knowledge, but lived experience, performing performing the drama of this redemptive story. We see that in the Passover event, which the people of God are to commemorate bodily year by year for as long as they exist. It's collective participation. It's a form of lived theology. The idea, the idea that someone could worship God alone in a room, it's not in the biblical worldview. That doesn't exist in the Bible. It's not to denigrate a personal devotional life with prayer and Bible reading, which I think is necessary for our spiritual formation, but it's not strictly, it's not, it's not in the biblical worldview whatsoever. It's only part of the equation, I would say. What we do together is as important, or let's face it, more so than what we do alone. So remember I was talking about modernity a few minutes ago. Most, if not all, pre-modern cultures, as far as I'm aware, uh, were collective cultures. They were not individualistic cultures. The individualism of the modern West is new on the world stage. Uh, we're only recently beginning to recognize this as such. But in our passage, the context is communal. Uh, and it's an honor and shame context. So to go it alone, to strike out on one's own, uh, to refuse to participate in the, in the collective rituals that God is setting out for his people uh, is a form of treachery. It's a form of bringing shame to your culture. It's a form of bringing shame to one's family and really in context to one's nation, to go it alone. 
This highlights the next major point I want to make, which concerns the provisions around eating or not eating unleavened bread. That was mentioned twice in that long passage. That, that should focus our attention on that. Why does it matter so much whether somebody eats or doesn't eat unleavened bread? Well, during this feast, if someone eats what is leavened, bread that has risen, God says they're cut off from Israel. Twice that's mentioned. Does it, that seems extreme to us because we're individualistic and modern. In a sense, eating, eating leavened bread when the whole nation is supposed to eat unleavened bread, which symbolizes the quickness of their liberation from this oppressive state, is a way of going it alone, is a way of effectively cutting themselves off. They're going against the grain of the nation in this collective culture. They're cut off because they're, they're doing it to themselves. Uh, Israel is being formed as a people, and they're asserting just individual personhood in the midst of their common peoplehood. These symbolic acts are what identify them as the people of God. So, also, this is a polytheistic society. Of course, God is the only true God, and he's showing that in his dominance over the supposed false gods of Egypt. But to eat leavened bread, to go against the community of the people of God, is to assert that he's not the only God. It's to assert the God of self. It's to assert a, a localized polytheistic deity. It's, it's idolatry. Why is it so important whether someone eats or doesn't eat unleavened bread? It's a marker of who is your God. It, it's a way of distinguishing yourself as the people of God or not as the people of God. If you don't want to identify as the people of God, well, you don't have a place in God's people. That's why they're cut off. They're, they're opting out. They're opting out of their Israelite identity. They're rejecting God. We should not see this as an instance of someone who loves God, wants to follow and obey God, wants to do right by their fellow Israelites, but makes a frivolous and uh, non-important mistake and are then punished for it against their will. That's reading our culture and worldview back into the text, which that's our default in reading the Bible in general. Uh, we have to learn to recognize that and to resist that, or else we, we will not get the message of the Bible. It's a rejection of God, therefore there's no place for them uh, with the people of God. So being cut off from Israel, it doesn't need to be understood as a death sentence, actually. Uh, it would have forced a more isolated, nomadic existence uh, in which survival would have been a lot harder, of course. Uh, but more importantly, the vitality, the vitality of being a part of the worshiping community would be gone. There's no vitality. There's no life in isolation. There's no life in rejecting the people of God to go it on our own. I think I've felt this during our disembodied COVID everything. There's no vitality when, when, the, when there's not participation in what God is doing with the community of his people. There's no vitality in a, in a solo life of spiritualism. There, there just isn't. We're not wired that way. We're not cr created that way. So, but it <laughs> it's the human tendency. The human tendency is to opt out of what God is doing. What God is doing is always in the context of a people that he's forming. To opt out of that, uh, to isolate ourselves from God's plan and purposes for our lives, which is always in the context of our lives, the, the lives of us together. Uh, it is the human tendency. It is 
Israel's tendency. You see this tendency of the nation of Israel through the rest of the Bible. It's Egypt's tendency. It's the human tendency. And it's, it's the reason for the final, very peculiar aspect of this Passover event that I will highlight, which is the lamb. Why are lambs important? Why lambs without blemish? Why was the blood of the lamb used to protect Israel from God himself? Why, why are lambs so significant? Well, the most powerful economic, political, and military force the world had known to that point, Egypt, was about to be brought down in a single night, in, in an instant, uh, by an expression of God showing his power, showing his omnipotence, showing his deity, the only God, the only actual God in existence. Uh, Egypt is about to experience the might of the true and living God. In all of its pomp and arrogance, uh, Egypt is going to be humbled, and the only thing that would stay God's hand from bringing everyone down is the blood of these lambs, the blood of spotless lambs. And very importantly, it's uh, it's not Israel for its own sake that, it, that is spared. The, the thing that stays God's hand, the thing that God says uh, that makes him say, I will spare you from this just judgment on human sin, is it's not the Israelite identity. It's Israel with the blood of these lambs on their doorposts. Israel with the blood of these spotless lambs. They're no better than Egypt. They just have the blood. They're no better than the people that they hate the most. They just have the undeserved blood of these lambs on their doorposts. They're simply chosen by God to magnify himself through them by showing his grace to them. So again, why lambs? Why are lambs significant? Because they are the most helpless, non-defensive, non-threatening animals that could have possibly been known in this context. Uh, so what, why are they important? Well, remember this, this whole event is marked by symbolism. This whole event is symbolic in some way. So keep that in mind. The Passover is to be remembered and reenacted symbolically in ways that commemorate the presence and actions of God in their midst. Secondly, I'll get back to that. Secondly, the whole thing has a future orientation. It's not just about the past. It's not just about remembering their flight from Egypt. This, this whole act of hastily eating a meal, followed by this seven-day feast of unleavened bread. The Passover is sort of the initial event for this wider seven-day feast. It, it has a future orientation. Hastily eating this meal in preparation for this seven-day feast, it's, it's kind of got a future, futuristic movement to it. God is speaking to the whole experience of this newly created people, remembering the past of their slavery, being brought out of that slavery for the purpose of worshiping him and for the hope, and for the hope of a future restoration of the way things should be. The Passover is about the past, it's about the present, it's about hope for the future. The Passover has a future orientation to it. It's about the hope for God's final judgment final judgment on the whole history of humanity and humanity's escape from his judgment passover is pointing to something much bigger than this isolated incident in exodus 
In fact, it looks forward to the rebirth. Remember, Israel is being born in this moment. The Passover is looking forward to the actual rebirth of humanity and the recreation of creation, the recreation of the world itself when human sin is fully and finally dealt with for all time. And, and just as at the Passover, the night of God's just judgment on human sin, just as that could not have happened without the sacrifice of a lamb without blemish, so the great deliverance of humanity from the effects of our sin, our rebellion, our opting out of God's people cannot happen without the sacrifice of a lamb without blemish. In the New Testament, fast forwarding to 1 Corinthians 5, 7, the Apostle Paul calls Christ Jesus our Passover lamb. Again, why a lamb? Paul identifies this uh, lamb with Christ, but again, why a lamb? Well, elsewhere, Jesus is called the lion of the tribe of Judah. Yeah, he's the king of Israel. He's the regal and powerful king of his people, but he alone, he alone is innocent of anything ungodly. And at his first coming, he identified physically, not as this powerful, regal, magisterial, kingly lion, this ferocious and powerful and indestructible lion. No, he identified humbly in, uh, in the form of one who didn't uh, defend himself, didn't exert power aggressively and ferociously as he could have and would have been just in so doing. No, he identified as a helpless lamb one who didn't defend himself even against those who were unjustly seeking to put him to death in the worst possible way. He opened not his mouth. He, he was led like a sheep to the slaughter. He willingly laid down his life. He acted as a helpless lamb, though he is the powerful lion of the tribe of Judah. That, that means the people of Israel. The lambs used in this Passover event are symbolically pointing to the lamb who is Christ, who laid down his life for his people innocently and uh, without defending himself. Lambs are symbolic of the sacrificial life of Christ. Only those Israelites who were marked by the blood of lambs were passed over God's just and righteous judgment. So now only those marked by the blood of Christ, the Passover lamb par excellence, passed over in the final judgment on human history because we've all participated in the evils of human history we're no better than the egyptians the israelites or any other people group we're simply the recipients of god's grace the recipients of his unmerited favor the gospel is concealed in these elements these peculiar elements of the passover these obscure elements the peculiar nature of the way it's reenacted well it's because the gospel is bound up with it the laying down of the life of the firstborn son of God for us. And at the knowledge of this, our text says that the Israelites bowed their heads and worshiped. There's no more fitting response. And the church has an opportunity to enact this response weekly in its celebration of the Lord's Supper. Now, I'd hazard a guess that most of us are somewhat familiar with the New Testament gospel accounts of Jesus breaking bread and sharing wine at the Last Supper with his disciples and saying, this is my body, which is given for you. This is my blood, which is poured out for you, which signifies the new covenant of your relationship with God, who is me. 
This, this signifies your relationship, the newness of the way that I relate to, to my people now. You're vaguely familiar with those accounts. Did you know that that was the Passover meal they were eating? They were celebrating this meal. They were enacting this Passover event. The Passover event looked forward to the Last Supper. When sacrificial lambs found their fulfillment in Christ, the Lamb of God. Therefore, now there's no more lamb involved because they only pointed to Christ. It is his blood that marks the people of God as those passed over in judgment. Now remember, Egypt was guilty of the sin of genocide against Israel's firstborn. That was a claim to deity by Pharaoh. Uh, God responded ultimately by offering the life of his own firstborn that we might become children of God. And now the blessing of this, the blessing of the Passover event has been extended to all nations. Collectively, we get to share in the remembrance of God's deliverance as well as the hope of final deliverance from our slavery to the corruption of our bodies, the, the aging ultimately unto death of our bodies, from our slavery to the passage of time itself. Yeah, we're slaves to time. We'll die. We will die. This body will go back to the earth, the dust from which it came. Just want to invite the band back up as I close out here. Even now, however, <laughs> despite the eventual corruption and death of our bodies, we're free to worship the God who brings us out of slavery for the purpose of worshiping him. I would suggest this means that we have an opportunity to organize the time that he's given us, the relatively short amount of time that he's given us in these bodies, to organize our time and our dates in such a way as to facilitate worship, to, to foreshadow the worship uh, that we will enjoy forever in his presence, because by the death of Christ, by the life of Christ, by the entering into time, of Christ, of God himself, entering into the time that he created to suffer the effects of time, the corruption of time, the way that humans have evilly, is that a word, the way that we, we have just <laughs> done the worst possible things in the time that God has given us, the God who entered into that experience gives us ultimately freedom from time and all of its ill effects that we might worship God in his presence forever to enact the great story of our redemption in new resurrected bodies not subject to the passage of, passage of time forever that is our inheritance in Christ uh, I, I, I suggest that this also gives support for um, following time using dates in such a way that communicates the Christian story. So, so the Christian calendar, not every church follows a church calendar. I do support such a practice. At the very least, using dates, using times in a way that tell the story of Christ and, and allow us to enact participation in the story of Christ as a way to foreshadow the unending nature of time in his presence forever, which comes soon, Lord. Let it be soon organizing our time around the person of Christ, who he is, what he's done, how we're to live in response is our calling. Uh, I suggest that what, however we organize our year as a church and as a people, we consider how uh, the story of Christ might be told and lived in what we do with 
the time that he's given us. Time is a sacred thing. May we use it in the service of the God who entered time that we might know him forever. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for this truth, for the truth of who you are, what you've done, for entering into our time to redeem us from time, to, to pass over us in judgment, to create a people uh, that, that is connected to you, Lord, through, throughout the ages. That, that shows us your deity, Lord, that, that there has been a people connected to the God of the Bible throughout the ages that I'm confident will continue for as long as the earth exists and into the new age when, when time is no longer a factor in our lives. I pray that if anyone, God, doesn't know you, is, is on the fence, is searching, if, if you're knocking on the door, that they, they would open, Lord, and um, you, would, you would come into their lives, redeem them, uh, bring them into your family, pass over them, God, as, as you have passed over us through the blood of your Son. I pray that you would be um, continually, continually growing your church, Lord, adding to this wonderful family that, that gets to identify as your people, even in the midst of a world that does reject you, Lord. I pray that the world that rejects you would slowly be converted to you, uh, that you would be waking them up to the, to the awesome reality of your grace, and that, that grace might characterize your people as they live their lives in this world. In Jesus' name.